My uh, first take at a title for this sermon today was, Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones, But I Can Hurt Myself Just As Badly Without Either. I figured that was too long and that wouldn't fit nicely on a label. My second take was the difficulty of forgiveness when it comes to our sin. The difficulty of forgiveness when it comes to our sin. Forgiveness is a difficult thing, and understanding God's grace being extended to us amidst our rebellion can be a very, very difficult thing to grasp. At times, we examine our lives, we ignore who we are in Christ, and attempt to carry the burden of the sinful choices that we have made in the past, a feat that only God can do. And in doing so, it proves to muffle our hearts to the loving kindness that has been stretched out to our lives. At other times, we examine our lives and we are in awe of God's love, that it would awaken our heart that was so hard and choose to use us for his glory as we extend the same forgiveness to those around us. However, the life of a Christian necessitates that we continually pursue God's gracious love in order to be fully awakened to what it means to be forgiven and in turn to forgive others. And you may wonder right now as I read those two passages, what's, what's going on? What's happening in the life of David? Why so downtrodden? Didn't we just have a pretty stellar account from Pastor Aaron just last week of Psalm 51, right? A very famous psalm, one that's turned to quite often of what it might look like to repent after being caught in sin, after being confronted by Nathan. David cries out and lays his heart bare before the Lord. And we look at the pattern of him calling God who he is, naming his sin for what it is, knowing his offense was primarily against his creator. And we see this rawness before God, and he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me the joy again of my salvation. He wants to come to life. He wants to understand that this, as we know on this side of the cross, is gospel application, this reality that God's grace is there for the taking. He wants that to awaken his heart yet again. But his sin right now is enveloping him, and he's laying himself bare before God, knowing that's exactly where he needs to be. But the passages I read might paint a different story. In the last two weeks, Pastor Aaron walked us through how David's life has taken a bit of a turn, starting with the account of Bathsheba. And now we see just a stark difference of how David's life is being relayed by the author of First and Second Samuel. Nathan's prophetic confrontation and rebuke in Second Samuel has yet to play out in its entirety. So where David has now addressed God in Psalm 51 and has been forgiven, the consequences of his actions are yet to play out. David's dealing with the discipline of the Lord. Yet we are not so different than David. On one hand, our sin, when illuminated by God's Spirit, can convict us and turn us in the right direction as we repent. We pray through Psalm 51 with David. We become men and women of action and pursue that which will honor Christ. However, our conviction can also turn us into men and women of inaction. 
The sin we have committed is overwhelming to us, and before long, we are watching our life go idly by without connecting to the reality of God's faithfulness in our lives every day and extending that faithfulness to others. Yet regardless of David's sin and its consequences, consequences which will play out, God wants David and us to know that his grace is sufficient and his purpose to use David and to, you, to use us for his glory it won't be thwarted. And before we move on to the passages I read earlier, we have to look back at that rebuke that Nathan had with David, a prophetic one, meaning it was something that would foretell that because you have done this and offended the Lord, there will be consequences that will play out. And you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 12, 9-14, this is Nathan's rebuke and his prophecy. In the second part of verse 9, he says this, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Moving on to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. If you were to translate that, and you were to highlight that, and you were to write in the column of your Bible, you would say, Grace. If you don't understand God's grace in the Old Testament and suggest it's different than the New Testament, continue to read and open your eyes. This is yet again another opportunity that God reaches out to those whom he loves and shouts out grace. So in this prophetic proclamation and the consequences that are following, God coats it all and makes the statement that grace is here along the way. I cannot ignore what you've done, but understand that my loving kindness and compassion will be shown to you. Thus, your sin that is against the Lord has been put away. I love that. Put away. Nevertheless, in verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This, of course, was the child with Bathsheba the first. So take note from the outset that we see that God has declared David's sin as something he has put away. In other words, God's grace is on glorious display. Yet it is with the explicit understanding that David is a forgiven man based on his confession in verse 13. What does he say? I have sinned against the Lord. He, can, he sees it. His mind sees it. He sees God for who he is. He sees his sin for what it is. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in verse uh, 51, or 4, in, in Psalm 51, this is why he says against you, and you only have I sinned, because it is in light of God that first our sin is made known, and then its consequences to others will be played out. And a prophet confronting the king will be the consistent picture of Israel's journey until Christ, but the difference between Saul's sin before and David's sin now is that when Saul was confronted by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, Saul went to deflection and justification. However, when David was confronted by Nathan, he fully and wholly acknowledged it before the Lord, and that outcome again we know is grace. If this were the Apostle Paul, he might start with, O wretched man that I am. But Paul would conclude with saying, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen? 
And so my question to us as a church that I want you to ponder as we read through these passages, and I want it to resonate in our hearts, is this. When we are confronted in our sin by the Spirit of God, what is our response? How do we walk out forgiveness? And from Nathan's confrontation in chapter 12 to David's exit from Jerusalem that we read in chapter 16, his life events take a trajectory where we see an apathetic king paralyzed as the consequences of his sin play out within his family. I will summarize those few chapters, but if David's life prior to his particular sin with Bathsheba would be categorized as a, a man of action, as we remember in the earlier accounts in the story of David, of him going up and saying, you know what, by faith, how dare you speak against God and his people, I will kill you, Goliath, and with one stone he did. And then he would go out to battle and continue to fight for the Lord, for his people, for their land, for the community that they would have because of God establishing himself as king and showing favor to his people. You see, that king is a man of action, but after his particular sin with Bathsheba, we see the, downcline, da, the downturn and the decline of David's action. And he turns into a man of inaction. His sin has somehow clouded his understanding of who God is and God's faithfulness and his grace towards him. And he now becomes a man of inaction. So let me replay some of what you already know, but so that it's fresh in our minds. The consequences of David's sin, obviously, he sins with Bathsheba. He then goes on to murder Uriah to get him out of the picture as cover-up. Well, Nathan confronts him, and his child then dies. Over the next several years, David and Bathsheba have additional children, one of which is Solomon, who by God's grace would eventually reign on the throne after David's death. Is not God faithful? Yes, he is. In the very next chapter, we see Nathan's prophecy continue to take shape as David's son, Amnon, has inappropriate relations with his half-sister, Tamar. And David finds out about this, and he's angry. He's raged. He's watching his family become distraught. What is happening? And what does David do then with his anger after he sees what is happening? He takes action? No. The Bible says he does nothing. Nothing has happened. He doesn't speak to the situation other than showing that he is angry. No word is spoken on him taking his son Amnon to account. However, Absalom, who's Tamar's full brother, is infuriated with the situation not being dealt with by David. It begins to fester in Absalom, and for two years... As he speaks, not one word to Amnon. Forgiveness is not an option, so he stores up bitterness and hatred, which leads Absalom to plotting and killing Amnon. After this, Absalom then flees to his in-law's town for three years. And though David, the Bible says, longs to go out and see him, he never once visits. So again, the picture is, one son kills another after that son does something horrendous to his daughter, he does not address the situation, and then his one son flees, but he does not even go out to reconcile that which he should. Not only from a judicial standpoint, because he is the king and something has been done wrong, but also from a familial standpoint, that now his son and his family are starting to unravel as Nathan has already prophesied, and he shirks his responsibility and remains silent. A man of inaction. 
So Absalom remains there for three years, and Joab, David's commander, devises a plan and eventually brings back Absalom into Jerusalem with David's blessing. So David knows that Absalom is coming back. Yet for two additional years, David does not allow Absalom to come into his presence. This now is in his own backyard. He has opportunity. He can't say, I don't think my camel will make it there. Like, that's not an option. He is now in his own backyard. He is in Jerusalem. And for two years, he says to Joab, he says, you know what? He can be here. This is good, I guess. But for two years, he avoids speaking with him again. Again, a man of inaction. Well, this unfortunately begins to birth other things. And Absalom eventually rises up, and he sets himself as a pseudo-king by one of the gates to the city and starts to gather a following in order to take over the kingdom from David. That bitterness that was now once against his brother, and maybe his anger was rightful at one point, has now turned into a father issue. And he's looking not to resolve that whatsoever, but because Absalom is chasing his sin, letting it fester, and letting it spill over, here he is setting up himself at the gate, seeing people and letting them know that if he were king, this is what he'd do. He begins to gather a following under David's nose. And as Absalom's influence grows, David fears the carnage in Jerusalem. He gathers those still faithful to him, and he begins to flee. Church, our sin can have paralyzing effects. Paralyzing effects when it comes to God's forgiveness. So we go to the passage, the first one that I had read 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 14. Shimei curses David. In verse 5, when King David comes to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. So it sets up the passage to understand who he is. Shimei comes out of the house of Saul, Saul being the former king, Saul being a Benjaminite. So as much as when David became king eventually, and there was, what, peace in the land, as scripture says, there may have been on the net level, meaning that most of Jerusalem and Israel, they were all doing well. But unfortunately, there were factions of people that said, you know what, I still wish my uncle Saul or my great uncle Saul were there. There was still bitterness that was rising and festering in the northern parts. And so we see some of this come to play as David is leaving. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So the picture is this, that there is a path that David is taking and all of his mighty men. And there's a ravine that goes between, and then Shimei is on the other side of this ravine. And all, is he do, all he's doing is he's walking with them, and as he sees them, he's just picking up stuff, and he's throwing stuff at them, and he's cursing him, and he's following him. As if David isn't frustrated enough that now he's leaving Jerusalem, he's got this voice from this puny guy across the ravine. And then here's David over here with his mighty men. This puny voice, David, 
his mighty men, Jerusalem, he's getting out of Dodge. This guy is echoing obscenities at him, cursing him, throwing rocks. It's the little things. Get out, verse 7, he says. Get out, you man of blood. He's calling him a murderer. You worthless man, basically good for nothing. Now, contextually, when he calls him a murderer, the only thing that we know, the last murderer that is tied to David, at least as something describing him, is his murder of Uriah. That's our understanding coming into this passage. But he goes on to say not only that, maybe that is resonating within David's mind as he's hearing this. In verse 8, he says, The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the land, into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Again, echoing that. So not only is he blaming him and calling him a murderer, and David knows surely what's at the forefront of his mind, he now is blaming him for the loss of the land, the, the Saul being killed, Jonathan being killed, and now the kingdom being handed over to David. He's got issues with him in many, many different ways, and he's yelling out what would be false prophecy, because who chose David to be king? God did, not man. This is a false prophetic word being thrown at him, and David just says, he hears it, he hears it, and he walks along. And in verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog, the ultimate curse, curse my lord to the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That, that seems right. He's cursing you. Can I, can I just take off his head? I don't know if you have any friends like that. I would encourage you maybe to step back from them and your proximity to them. But there are people who are on your side who do want to do the right thing, but they maybe go about it in the wrong way. That maybe grace isn't close to their hearts so quickly. That they just want to say, are they bothering you? I'll kill them. Now maybe it was more common back then, I'm thinking. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So understand this race here. Both Joab, David's commander, and Abishai were sons of Zariah. They were known because their fondness for violence. And even David, after, his, after the death of Abner, who commanded Saul's army, makes mention of their violence. He even sets it apart from David, who was known to be a man of war, right? That's why he couldn't build the temple. So in 2 Samuel 3.39, um, this is what David said. He says, these men, these sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. Almost like, I, I can't believe it. <laughs> like, they take it a step up. They say, here, hold my coffee. I can do better. And as David's life has taken a dramatic turn, these are the mighty men he has next to him. And we have to remember that as we walk out the effects of sin and God's discipline, we need people next to us who have the same goal as the Lord. I think we can think on Job and as he walks through the suffering that he is incurring, and he has three men who come up to him who are supposed to be his dear friends. And at first, some things that they say are good, but in no way are they connecting with the plan that the Lord has for Job. And in the same way, these mighty men, though they want to do the right thing, they aren't necessarily advising him in the right way. And so we too, that as we walk out the consequences of our sin, need to know who is to our right and who is to the, our left and who is advising us with the Lord's heart 
in mind. And so David's response in verse 10, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. I want you to kind of note that phrase there, the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. There are differences, I'm going to take this phrase here, there are differences with how this passage has been translated over the years and through various interpretations. And in your Bibles, if you pick up probably five Bibles, you'll have probably two to three different interpretations, which honestly change the trajectory in some ways of how you might read this passage. In the ESV, as you hear, it's on the wrong done to me. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which has been used for a very long time, it says this, the Lord will look on my iniquity or on my guilt. That has a change to the passage. The Lord will look on my guilt versus will look on the wrong done to me. NAS reads, the New American Standard, the Lord will look um, on my affliction. Well, the Lord will look on my affliction might have two applications. Is it the affliction that I have done or what I'm incurring now by this little guy across the ravine? The NAV reads, the Lord will look on my misery. Well, that's a whole other one going on there. Bible translation isn't necessarily easy. Um, there's context within the passages. There's context within the grammatical vernacular. What are they using? What are they saying? And you're looking at the whole picture of what God is doing. But either translation, what we see here is that David is having problems as the picture is being painted. Number one, he's leaving Jerusalem. Number two, he's leaving the ark, God's presence. In other words, if you were a king, what you wanted is God's presence with you. You wanted the assurity that the ark would be with you. You wanted God's favor and God's blessing. And what David is doing now is he's saying, well, you know what, Absalom is rising up. My sin clearly is being played out. The consequences are in well into effect. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay down Jerusalem and I'll walk away from the ark in the presence of the Lord in the favor of God, and he's walking out. His son is attempting to dethrone him. In every previous chapter since Nathan's confrontation, David has sat and watched as his family comes to turmoil, wreaking havoc on his household from within, and he seemingly just sits and he watches. Every previous chapter would paint that picture. Robert Alter says of this passage, behind that fatalism may be a sense of guilt. I'm suffering all this because what I have done for taking Bathsheba and murdering her husband for my inaction in Amnon's rape of Tamar and Absalom's murder of Amnon, the guilt is coupled with despair. As David goes on to say, when my own son is trying to kill me, what difference could it make if this man of a rival tribe, who at least has political ground for hostility toward me, should rival me? Another commentator says this about the passage. A bad sermon, as he's being yelled at, he's referencing, a bad sermon can still tell the truth. David is able to hear God's word in Shimei's rants, and what he hears brings David to himself. 
He faces what he has become. All the wrongs he's committed, all the people he has failed are brought to awareness by Shimei's curses. David could have taken a defensive and vengeful posture, but he does not. He faces the truth about himself. He faces the truth that his basic identity has not been king, but sinner. And that he can only live by God's mercy. Shimei's curses peel the royal veneer off David and expose his soul. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but as you see your sin play itself out and you hear it resonate in your mind, you don't just think of that sin, but you then begin to list line after line what in your past you have done, and it compiles and it becomes that straw that begins to break your soul's back. And soon that piles up so high that you do not see God's grace And you try to walk that out under your own strength that you can muster up at the time. Your emotions break down. Your psyche breaks down. You turn inward and nothing else matters. You become idle. Let him have at me. What he's saying is probably true. I don't know. Let it happen. I deserve it. We lash ourselves in our mind and we lash ourselves with the words that people say. We repeat them over and over and over again. Every time, building that wall up, building that burden up in our hearts, not seeing that God's grace is totally sufficient, that that is not what he speaks over us. When he says, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. Walk now in that forgiveness. That is a continual process. But David now realizes the scenario, is being cursed from there, and says, maybe, maybe this is what the Lord has for me. Now, I also think that David does trust the Lord, that though what has happened now, what has transpired, has come to him leaving Jerusalem in the ark. He does believe that God is sovereign. Those aren't just idle words from his lips. Too many psalms in his profession declare that. However, when sin has its way with us, it paralyzes and numbs us to the reality of God's sweet grace already spoken over us. Understand this, church. Something we need to grab a hold of as we're thinking about our sin and God's forgiveness, that God's final word in our lives is grace. God's final word in our lives is grace. As Pastor Aaron said last week, There is way more grace in God than there is sin in us. And the difference with how we perceive that is we pile it up. God doesn't do that. God squelched it all on the cross. And so in verse 13, to conclude this specific passage, David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. There are people who are along the path in your life that will literally just scream at you things that you need to dwell on that God has already dealt with. Get away from them. Whether they're in the church or whether they're outside the church, stay away. God's word over your life is grace. Line yourself up with people who will speak that over your life, because it is God's word. Know who you are in Christ, 
and walk accordingly. And surround yourself with people who will do that. Well, eventually, David's men defeat Absalom's men, and Absalom is killed in the process. David's son has died in a very peculiar way. I encourage you to read that, um, but we don't have time at this point. After a time of grieving and some strong encouragement from Joab, David is now seen returning as king to Jerusalem, where the second part of Shimei's conversation plays itself out. And this is where our forgiveness, understanding God rightly, can have a life-giving effect on others. And in 2 Samuel 19, you can flip over to there in verse 16 through 23, this is where David pardons his enemies. We'll start to read in verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David picture now, this is the same little guy who, who's throwing stones, cursing him all along the way. And now he sees David, and he has the boldness to come. When I say boldness, he's got a thousand men behind him, but he has the boldness to come, forge the river, immediately run out to him, and fall down right before David. Now in reality, David has every right as king to strike him, to curse the king, results in death. He has every right to do so. And so there is a boldness on Shimei's part. And in verse 17, and with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, signifying the allegiance now coming even from Saul's party. And Ziba the servant of the house of Saul with his 15 sons and his 20 servants rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's households and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king, and he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Now, you can certainly read into this, meaning it doesn't say that there are political ties they've turned, and now he's in essence trying to save face, knowing that he could be put to death here. But this is his last-ditch effort. I'm just going to lay it all out. Here it is. I'm wrong. You're just kind of waiting. You know what I mean? You're like, your head's down. You're like, please, please. You hope no sword comes. You don't want to feel anything on your neck. And so in verse 21, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered in similar fashion to before. Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Again, can I lop off his head? Enough is enough. Can the dude die? But David said, he pauses, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Again, you violent one, that you should this day be as an adversary, that word translated is Satan, by the way, same word, that you should be an adversary to me, speaking against that which God has put forth in his heart. Adversary. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? 
And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. This is important. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am king this day over Israel? This is David grasping, walking back into Jerusalem, the place that he loves with God's approval that he loves so much. This man who is a man after God's own heart now realizes God, all the prophetic utterances from Nathan have now played themselves out. And you also have now had the last word, and I am now being restored, continuing in my kingship over Israel. And in that, David says, no, don't kill him. The grace that's been extended to me, extend that to him as well. And I give you my oath, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now, for many of us, we understand that forgiveness is difficult. We've been hurt. We can go over the varying degrees of what that looks like, and this is actually not the sermon for that. This is looking at how David kind of walked back into Jerusalem, went through the consequences of his sin. But the reality is that church members and people outside of church hurt us. What then do we do with that? What do we do even before that, with our own sin that catches up to us, that in the middle of the night, that as we reflect upon the seasons of our life, we say, wow, I wish I had done that better. Or why did I do this? Or look where I'm ending up right now. And we start to dwell on that which has been an offense to God at one time. But we've confessed it. We brought it before the Lord, and we stood up knowing that we were forgiven before God because His grace was sufficient. What happens when we go back there time and time again? Almost as if we're reminding God of something He's already forgiven. Some people would suggest that the phrase for this is, I cannot forgive myself. But there's a problem in that phrase. The problem in that phrase suggests that you are the God who should forgive yourself. That you are the one who stand, should stand on the throne of your life and say, I forgive myself, I now give myself pardon. But the reality is it's God who's the one who should have the final word on your life. Your identity now is not you. Your identity is in Christ submitting to God's word over your life. And God says you are forgiven, that means you are forgiven. That is now your identity, someone who is forgiven in Christ. You don't need to forgive yourself because you don't take the place of God in your life. You don't speak the final word on your life. If we did, we'd all be dead. Every other Tuesday, probably. God has the final word on your life. And when you stand before him in the throne, Christ is the one who vouches for us. Because our identity is in him. It isn't about you forgiving yourself. It's about you understanding who God is and walking in his forgiveness. God has the final word on your life. He is the one who's ultimately forgiven you for good. Even as the consequences play out. Now, as we look at forgiving others, if we don't tap into and understand God's forgiveness for our own lives, then it will be impossible 
Listen to that word. It will be impossible to rightly forgive as God would have it those who have sinned against us. You will wrestle with it day and night. And unless you grab hold of the grace that's been extended to your way as one who deserved death, you will not be able to extend that grace in love towards someone else. Now, you might put them in their proper place. You might categorize them out of your life. But the reality of what your heart is dealing with and what is festering in your life will not go away. And God desires to use those moments because they will happen. A year ago, I, I, we spoke about the word pictures of the church and my word picture was broken. Guess what? Hurt people hurt people. We all hurt people. We have sin in our life and it will play itself out with the person next to us in the pew. It will play itself out in our households. It will play itself out with our children, with our family, and with believers in Christ who really do hurt us. But our goal and our desire is to represent Christ and his grace needs to be extended to that person who's in the same position that we are. And that we as a church need to pursue God and his goodness in order to have healthy unity and restoration with those who are around us. Now, I will say forgiveness is not the exact same as restoration. Your relationship might look different from another person. Again, that's a longer sermon, and it should be. Because there are real situations that should be handled delicately and with concern. But God does want us to forgive. That is a command. But we extend the forgiveness that's been extended to us and in light of him. And so I asked the question at the beginning of the message, when we are confronted in our sin by the Spirit of God, what is our response and how do we walk out forgiveness? As a fellow Christian and someone who struggles day in and day out, Sometimes more days than not. Sometimes seasons are long and arduous on what I need to forgive of others and how I need to understand God in light of my own forgiveness. I stress this, that the importance of understanding this and the answer to this question has direct implications on our lives with God and our lives with each other. If we don't understand that God's grace is continually sufficient and waiting for those who confess, repent, and cleave to Christ's forgiveness, then we will inevitably paint a picture of God that is foreign to the words that are on the pages of Scripture. We need to see throughout the pages of David's life that God's grace proves sufficient every single page. And God's grace always has the last word. Tim Keller says in his book um, called Prayer, I don't know if you've read this or digested it, I would suggest you do, but he says this. Remembering the freeness of forgiveness, he titles this section. It says this, Jesus Christ paid for our sin. Sin's condemnation can no longer fall on we who have repented and believed in him. Romans 8.1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we forget this, we turn confession into a grueling, self-punishing penitence rather than gospel repentance. If we forget that, we turn ourselves into some grueling, penitential people who are trying to check off a list in a prayer closet saying, well, I've done what I'm supposed to do. Why don't I feel better? Because God is doing a greater gospel work for God's glory 
for his gospel to go forth, which starts with grace and ends with grace and sustains us with grace. And we're supposed to carry that not only in us, but conduits of that. And as situations arise, as we, as we have hurts, as we have offenses, that we extend that forgiveness to those who are in front of us. And might I say, trepidly, regardless of the offense. I will close with this verse, as Paul says in Corinthians 12, and 2 Corinthians 12. And understanding this verse in light of what David has gone through as well. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Forgiveness is not easy, but it's necessary for God to have all the glory in and through our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the reality that grace has the final word in our lives. Even when we see you face to face, it is grace that speaks, covers our sin, and welcomes us into a whole relationship with you for eternity. Lord, we long for that day, and as you have reached out, and even in the midst of our own sin have forgiven us, you then choose to use us to proclaim that grace to those in front of us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace, which covers all of our sin. For you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.